Welcome to this episode of The Roboticist. My guest today is Dr. Robin Murphy, a professor at Texas A&M University and an expert in rescue robotics. Welcome. Howdy, as we say here in Texas. Nice. So um, tell me a little bit about rescue robotics and, and how you got into that and what the problem is that you're trying to solve. I got into disaster robotics back in 1995. You know, people have been talking about using robots for disasters since the 1980s, but nobody had ever done anything like that. Well, 1995 was a banner year. We had the Kobe earthquake in Japan, and we had the Oklahoma City bombing in the United States. And at that point, myself and independently, Satoshi Todokoro in Japan both realized all these cool little small robots that we were all thinking were going to go to Mars and eventually become, you know, Sojourner. Uh, that same technology could be used to help find victims in the rubble, help find them, help stabilize them, help take care of them for the four to 10 hours it would take to extract them and just be of asset. And so that's when I started. All right, cool. So what are some of the particular challenges that you run into in that space? I mean, obviously you're working in challenging environments and sometimes, you know, desperate conditions. What does that translate into in terms of both the AI side and in the mechanical and, and physical presence side? Well, it's, I find it harder than space robotics because it's so hard. So let's think of it as three things have got to come together. You've got, you've got to have your robot, but you've got to understand your environment. And there's a task, so you, know, you want them to do something. And then there's another part, which is the person. There's always a person involved. Often, there's a, you know, you think of the person behind, the rescuer, the responder, the decision maker, but then there's a the person in front, and some of my work is looked at and now is being taken up by Dr. Cindy Bethel, who's doing excellent, uh, is that what do you do when you've got a robot in your face, shining mm -hmm. its bright, flashy lights at you, and you've been trapped in the dark, and you're kind of not doing so great, and something loud and scary out of a science fiction movie comes for you, is that a good thing or a bad thing for your heart rate, and, and so right. So we look at the problems, we look at all of the problems in total. We look at the pairwise, sort of how they go together, like can you characterize the environment? We've now been to enough disasters, we and other people, to start thinking about how to characterize how big is an environment? What kind of robot would you have? If you've got a you, unmanned aerial vehicle, would you use the $70,000 one or the $1,000 one? What's the trade-off and the payloads and the duration? So that's one thing we look at. We look a lot at um, how can we make the robot smarter? So a big project of ours right now is, if you saw from the Fukushima, uh, there were two, always two robots, one doing something and they're looking. It wasn't because the second one was trying to get pretty pictures to let everybody know what was going on. It's because we give robots you know, cameras in their wrist, and for some odd reason, you know, we can't seem to get anything to work. And so that second view comes around, well, why not automate that? Why not have these robots talk and the assistant robot be a good assistant and maybe be an aerial vehicle, fly over here, look at the best, maybe second best view. And that leads us to the third area of where does the human come in? So the human's viewpoint uh, of that requires you understanding something about how humans think, how they perceive the perceptual psychology. If you let people pick a view, which is what typically you do when you let the robotics do, they, they pick a pretty view, but not necessarily one that gives you a better view. And if you do it right, two heads are nine times better than one. Gotcha. Very cool. So 
you know, robots originally, um, I, I'm a little pedantic about the use of the term, they weren't autonomous at all, they were remote controlled. Um, is there more autonomy coming into the work that you're doing now or is it sort of human assisted autonomy or, you know, where are they at? You know, I don't even know anymore what the word autonomy means. Uh, let's take aerial vehicles, which are probably the most autonomous. You can buy programs. We have used programs. You like drone deploy. You press a button, it takes off, it goes whip, 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 click, 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 takes the pictures back into there. Well, that's autonomous, except if you've ever used any of these programs and you're using them during disaster, you're going to be sitting in Overwatch. So is it autonomous or is it semi-autonomous? Right. I don't know, but a person, and I had to carry it out there anyway. And I have to look to make sure it's working right and then I have to compile the data. So is that autonomous or semi-autonomous? We'd like to get those processes as simple and as reliable as possible. So we are seeing greater degrees of autonomy. But going back to Fukushima, here you had a UAV, the uh, Honeywell T-Hawk. The operators were instructors. They were incredibly well-trained and they turned off the autonomous flight path navigation. They wanted, they were flying under bad conditions. You're flying with, you have no idea what the radiation levels are, so you don't know if that's gonna knock out any boards. And so they couldn't trust the software and the, the hardware because of those conditions. So they wanted to know that the only thing it was doing was what, it, besides falling out of the sky, besides you know, keeping a level flight, was, was what it, they were telling it to do. So we've never seen a disaster that didn't have a person want to look into, uh, no, over there that required full autonomy and could be done without a person involved. But it doesn't mean they're not coming, but at the same time, a lot of what you wanna do in a disaster is see and act in real time, you, the expert. Right. So I'd see much more autonomy in the recovery phase, right, when things have settled down, but less so in the first three days. Okay. But it's all there. I gotcha. So if somebody is interested in getting into this field, if they're, say, a general computer science student or they're somebody who's working in, in more vanilla programming and they're particularly interested in this part of the world and, and rescue robots and disaster robots in general, um, what do they need to learn? What are the skills that they should be picking up? Uh, how much demand is there in the world for that kind of skill set? Obviously, there's quite a bit, but what well, do they need to know? There's quite a bit. I would, you know, sort of titty my own horn here, grab the, my book, Disaster Robotics. So it was in 2014, but pretty much everything's still, still dead on, particularly how you get involved, because you don't show up to disasters uninvited. <laughs> and then you start looking at, it's, it's actually against the law in pretty much every country in the world. And there's also, when you think about it, it makes kind of perfect sense. But you know, you start looking, I did a webinar on computer scientists. One thing that we're setting up is we've got a new toolkit. And if you've got a good computer vision algorithm, you can donate that to, the, to this toolkit that can be downloaded by the responders. So it's not like OpenCV, which you, know, you pretty much need a PhD to figure that out some days, which is not what a responder is looking for after no sleep for three days and missing people and all that. This is, this is the time to download stuff. No. So what can they download and use that sort of push button -y? And so we're setting that up so they can contribute code for that. And they really should be thinking about uh, watching and thinking about how they can reach out to their local community so that they can be ready. We tell people that showing up to a disaster with a UAB and saying, I'm here to help is kind of like a person 
with a gun, right? We do guns here at Texas, right? We're famous for that. So you would think a person who has a, uh, a carry permit and a really nice gun and can show they're a great shot, they can't just show up to a police shootout and say, hey, we've got you, I've got you covered. Uh, you can do that. You know, I've got it down. It's like, holy, no, no, no. You can't, you know, there's accountability. There's, they don't know you from Adam. They're so busy, you're distracting them. Same thing with UABs. It's, it's like, they can't deputize you on the spot. You gotta have set this up beforehand and you gotta know something about the operational procedures. So go ahead and start thinking about that if you want to really be an asset for these types of situations. Now with the recovering stuff, it's not as stringent, but still. Gotcha, all right, thank you. So you mentioned your book. Um, what else can people learn about you? Is there a website? Is there other information online that they can find you at? Yes, well, I have, I have two, uh, two books of interest. There's the Disaster Robotics, which you can just you know, Google on Amazon and see that. But there's a new book, which is uh, Robotics Through Science Fiction, Artificial Intelligence Explained Through Six Classic Robot Stories. And that is, came out of my teaching, is that I started giving science fiction stories as extra credit that explained a concept. And so I took the six best of them it mirrors the chapters in my textbook, Introduction to AI Robotics, but it's really for a person who likes Malcolm Gladwell or Michael Lewis, not necessarily super into the science, but have a good background and curious, and walks them through what's real about these stories and lets these stories start the framing. So those are two things, and you can see that on my website, roboticsthroughsciencefiction.com. Awesome, all right, well, thank you very much. It was a great talk, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much, and it's, it's wonderful to get to see you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Roboticist. If you'd like to see more episodes, visit us at www.jaquette.com podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about how machine learning and artificial intelligence can help you create competitive advantage for your organization, visit us at www.jaquette.com AI. Thanks. <laughs>